Transitions in life can be hard things. They can make a person stronger or they can break a person's spirit. Five of the most stressful transitions in life, according to researchers, relate to marriage. Either the death of a spouse, a divorce, a separation, a reconciliation, or even getting married itself. Others that are stressful transitions on the list include suffering a personal injury or illness, losing a job, moving into retirement, also the death or illness of someone very close to you. Watching someone go through these kinds of transitions often gives you the opportunity to minister to them as well as the opportunity to learn from their experiences. So turn with me this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 25 in your Bibles where we are hopefully going to learn from the experiences of King David. 1 Samuel is a book of transitions. There's national transition going on for the nation Israel. Israel is transitioning from having judges rule over the nation to having a king rule over it. But there's also a personal transition taking place here. The transition of the throne of Israel from King Saul to King David. Now the promise of a king over Israel goes clear back to the very first book of the Bible when God told Abraham in Genesis 17 that kings would come from his descendants. The Lord through Moses again in Deuteronomy 18 promised that Israel would have a king. But during the time of the judges, after Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt and God led them into the promised land under Joshua, during that time, God was their king, mediating his rule through the judges that he had raised up. To rule in his place. But by the time of the last judge, the prophet Samuel, Israel was suffering defeat at the hands of surrounding nations, primarily the Philistines, because of their unfaithfulness towards God. The scripture says this was a time where every man in Israel did that which was right in his own eyes. They did not follow God. And so in 1 Samuel 25, verse 1, we see God continuing this transition. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Samuel is the great judge over Israel, and he's now dead. Two books of the Bible are named for Samuel. Samuel is the one who anointed Saul as king. And then after Saul repeated, repeated sins and his rejection by God, the Lord led Samuel to Bethlehem. To the youngest of Jesse's sons, who was out in the field tending to his sheep. This was the Lord's choice to be king over Israel. The young man David and Samuel anointed David as the king who would succeed Saul on the throne over Israel. And in chapter 24, the chapter just before the one we're going to look at today, it appears God has brought about a great opportunity for David to escape the sinful and unjust pursuit of him by Saul. You see, Saul had to use the restroom. He went into a cave to relieve himself. And it's the very cave where David and his men are hiding from Saul. You see, Saul had been chasing David, trying to kill him. Ever since David had defeated the great Philistine warrior Goliath, and God had given him victory over Goliath, 
Saul had been jealous of David. And now Saul had wanted to kill him. And here was Saul, pretty much a sitting duck inside the cave. And David and his men had the opportunity to kill him. David's men were urging David to do this. Get rid of this problem. Get rid of Saul. But David refused. David refused to take a life, to take the life of the Lord's king over Israel. It wasn't his job to do that. It wasn't his responsibility. So David spared Saul's life. And he refused to let his men take Saul's life as well. So we're in the midst of this transition from Saul as king over Israel to David as king as we come to 1 Samuel 25. And now God places in His Word a story that just doesn't seem to fit into this transition. From the bad King Saul to the good King David. Well, I have a four-point outline for you today. Point number one, Nabal is a fool and he proves it. Verses 2 to 11. Point number two, David decides to avenge Nabal's insult. Verses 12 and 13. Point number three, God graciously keeps David from disaster. Verses 14 to 31. And point number four, David repents and puts his trust in God. Verses 32 to 39. So point number one, Nabal is a fool and he proves it. Follow along with me as I read, starting in 1 Samuel 25, verse 2. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of that man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Well, this Nadab is a rich man. 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. And he's shearing his sheep in Carmel. It is the time of making money for Nabal. He could shear his sheep twice a year and sell his product and make lots and lots of money. So Nabal is, by the world's standards, a very blessed man. He's not only rich, but his wife is beautiful. And also we are told she is a discerning woman. That is, she is intelligent. But despite all his blessings, we are told that Nabal was harsh and badly behaved. He is a surly and mean man. He is wicked and evil. The Bible describes a fool as one who loves sin, one who doesn't trust in God or believe in Him, one who is selfish, who is unkind towards others and uncharitable to those in need, and Nabal fits that description. In contrast to his wife, Abigail, who is described as discerning, beautiful, intelligent. Well, now in verse 4, David enters the scene. Follow along with me, picking it up in verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. See, David and his men had been in the wilderness 
with Nabal's sheep and his shepherds. And we did them no harm, and they, did, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. David sends a greeting to Nabal that is very friendly, that is very generous. And David points out with with his men going to talk to Nabal that David's men in the wilderness have been protecting the sheep and the shepherds. Now, for us to comprehend the full impact of this, it's important for us to step back just a minute and really understand what's going on. In this culture, in this time, a couple of things are important to know. First, every good deed must be repaid by another. This means if I do something nice for you, it's expected you're going to do something nice for me in return. And secondly, hospitality to others requires that you never turn away or turn down the request of a guest. These values grew out of God's law, which in Leviticus 19 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To fail to return a favor or show hospitality to others is a sin. So now, as David's young men come to Nabal's door, they are not asking for some kind of protection money. Rather, they are asking for Nabal to return the favor and show hospitality in return for what David's men have already done for Nabal. After all, the very sheep that Nabal is reaping the profits from this day are the ones that David and his men helped protect in the wilderness. Well, let's jump down to verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where. Do you think Nabal doesn't know who David is? This is the David who has defeated Goliath, the great enemy of Israel, the Philistines. David's fame had spread broad and wide across Israel. Matter of fact, Nabal gives away the fact that he knows who David is by his next question. Who is the son of Jesse? He knows who David's father is. Now, Nabal is not asking questions here. Rather, he's making a statement. He's saying that David is a nobody to him. David is a nothing. He's saying he doesn't care about returning a favor for David. He's blowing David off. Note verse 11 in particular. Notice how Nabal phrases it. Shall I take my bread, my water, my meat that I have killed for my shearers? My, my, my. 
Nabal is a selfish man. But before we look down our noses at Nabal for too long, I have a question for you. We're all Nabals, aren't we? His story is our story, isn't it? How often in my life has it been or is it about what I want? Or about me? We are by nature selfish people according to the scriptures. Our relationships, our actions, even our thoughts are often characterized by selfishness, by sinfulness. Nabal's failure, like our failure to love our neighbors as ourselves, springs at its root from our failure to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, that apart from Christ, we are all in a dark place. We are all sinners. Here's what he says. We ourselves were once foolish. We were Nabal's. And as such, we were disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He goes on to tell us, but it is Christ that delivers us from our foolishness. It is Christ that delivers us from our rebellion and from our sin. Let's keep that in mind as we go through the rest of chapter 25. Well, what is David's response to Nabal? Well, that's under point number two. David decides to avenge Nabal's insult. Verses 12 and 13. Follow along with me as I read from verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained behind with the luggage. Well, David had had it with this guy. And he's leading the charge to go get him. David clearly has something on his mind, and it's not to sit down and have a nice little chat with Nabal about proper etiquette and hospitality. Okay. No, David is setting out to murder. And as we shall see, he is not just set on killing Nabal. David is so enraged, he intends to murder Nabal and every male associated with his household. All his sons and his male servants would be dead. Let me ask you, would this be justice? Has Nabal committed an act that deserves the ultimate penalty of death? For what? For failing to share food and drink? For failing to show hospitality to David and his men? How about all the men in, David's, in Nabal's household? Did they deserve to die at the hands of David's vigilante justice? For the sin of their master? Well, God's law required penalties that match the severity of the crime. Irregardless of whether David is the one responsible to enforce such penalties, David's vengeance in light of Nabal's insulting conduct is way out of proportion. But David has been disrespected. 
And in David's eyes, disrespecting the future king of Israel is worthy of death and death at a tragic scale. How could this happen? Here we have the book of 1 Samuel and it it tells us how bad Saul is. It tells us what a bad king he is. How how God's Spirit had left Saul and how, how Saul was absolutely standing up for only Saul himself and not for God. And God begins to raise David up. And David is portrayed as this exemplary individual, this hero, this virtuous man. God even empowers him to defeat Goliath and makes him the celebration of all the people of Israel. What a great man this David is. And just one chapter before, chapter 25 and 24, David had spared Saul's life. He had been gracious and merciful to Saul. But now David is acting just like Saul himself. Turn back with me just a couple of chapters to chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. So I ask, has power gone to David's head? Will he now go down the same path as Saul, a path that leads to the downward spiral of sin and selfishness? Well, here in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, Saul is intensely pursuing David and intends to kill him as was his pattern. And Saul has tracked David to the town of Nob. It's a town that was inhabited by by priests, by priests of God, of Israel. And Saul discovered that one of the priests there, Ahimelech, had given David food and supplies and Goliath's sword for protection, and that David had escaped Saul's grasp once again. And as we pick up the story in verse 13, Saul is interrogating this innocent and unknowing priest who had no idea that David had fallen out of favor with Saul, that that David was now the the pursued and hated one by Saul. So in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 22, Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little." Ahimelech is innocent. He's not guilty of what Saul has accused him of here. Well, what's Saul's response in verse 16? And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king, of King Saul, would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Saul's own servants, his own bodyguard, his own soldiers knew it was wrong to kill the priest. So, resourceful Saul, verse 18, Then the king said to Daog, 
You turn and strike the priests. And Daog the Edomite. Daog the Edomite? He's an enemy of Israel. The Edomites hated Israel. It doesn't bother Saul to bring in an enemy of Israel to do his dirty work. So Daog the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. What an outrageous, tragic, and unjust act by Saul. Saul's anger against David is fueling his passion for murder, and he vents his anger on 85 innocent priests along with their wives and children. It is a massacre. It is a massacre. And it appears, by the time we get back to 1 Samuel 25, that David is heading down the very same road. But I ask, what is fueling David's hatred of Nadab and his household? Well, it appears that it's no more than being disrespected and treated with contempt by Nadab. Well, I think it is that. But I think it's also the fact that Nadab denigrated David in front of his men. And when his men came back, those ten that went and heard Nadab do it, they told the other 600 men. So now not only is David personally offended, his reputation with his men is at stake. And his murderous plot moves forward as they all strap on their swords. Seems pretty small, doesn't it? To get so angry that it drives you to murder over disrespect, over your reputation. You see, in his self-righteousness, David has set himself up as judge and has declared Nadab and all his household guilty, and now he's going to execute the judgment. David's anger has brought him one decision from disaster. David's anger has brought him there. What did Jesus say about anger in the Sermon on the Mount? You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see, Jesus points out anger is pretty closely related to murder. Jesus speaks of them in parallel to one another. So while not many, if any of us, have murdered someone, I think I can pretty safely say we're all guilty of being angry with someone. Often it's with those who are the closest to us. Those we know, those we love, those we live with. I'm guilty of it. You are too. God knows it. Oh, some of us are better at hiding it than others. We dress it up and say, I'm not angry, I'm just a little frustrated. Or maybe you don't say anything at all. You just roll your eyes back in your head. Or maybe just think an unkind or judgmental thought. Maybe it's because our husband or your wife treated you with disrespect. Said something you didn't like or worse yet said something about 
view that you didn't like in front of your friends, in front of others. It might not be explosive anger you display, but at the very least, it's simmering inside. Or maybe it's those children God has blessed you with when they disobey or disappoint you that causes you to be angry. It's just another form of disrespect, isn't it? They aren't treating you with the respect and authority a mom or a dad deserves, and that really bugs you. And it really gets under your skin when they disobey in public, when everybody else gets to see too. What kind of parent will they think I am? Or how about your boss? Perhaps he doesn't give you the recognition you think you deserve. It's downright disrespectful, isn't it? I mean, he appreciates others more than me, and I work harder than all those people do. Well, what do all these have in common? They all exhibit the sin of pride. They are all symptoms of our self-righteousness. I deserve better, we say. I'm pretty good. I'm righteous is what we're really saying. Well, that's what Saul thought. He thought he was in charge. That's what Nabal thought. He thought he was in charge. And that's what David is thinking. He's thinking self-righteous, prideful thoughts. It's thinking that excludes God from whatever the situation is. It's thinking that pretends that God doesn't have anything to do with the situation you're in. It's thinking that only asks, what do I want, rather than what would God have me do in this situation. And David is truly one decision from that disastrous point. But God graciously and providentially steps in by bringing Nabal's wife, Abigail, to rescue David from making the biggest mistake of his young life to deliver him from executing revenge on her husband and his household. God's grace in this will extend not only to David, but to Abigail and to, his enti- and to Nabal's entire household. That brings us to point number three. God graciously keeps David from disaster. Well, first God steps in and uses a nameless young servant in Nabal's household to make the crisis known to Abigail. Verse 14 of 1 Samuel 25. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed against them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. In other words, they protected us both day and night. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak of him. His own servant knows the truth about Nabal. You can't even talk to this man. He won't listen to anybody. He's a worthless fellow, an evil fellow. Well, Abigail is not only beautiful and intelligent, she is resourceful and courageous. Verse 18, 
Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountains, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Well, David has made clear. Matter of fact, he's even vowed what his intentions are. When Abigail saw David, verse 23, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. This is a scandalous act that Abigail is doing here. She is a married woman. And she is going out to meet men who are not her husband without the knowledge of her husband. And she starts her speech by humbly approaching David. This is the longest speech recorded by a woman in the Old Testament. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let my Lord regard, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. She's saying, let not David regard my husband Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, from murder, and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living care in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall he shall sling out as hollow from a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my 
Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. What a speech. Abigail is humble before David, asks that the guilt of her husband and thus the judgment of David fall on her in place of her husband. She is willing to take the punishment for him. Abigail acknowledges her husband's foolishness, although I don't think the New Testament would recommend to you wives that you talk about your husband or think of him in this way. When Abigail says, evil shall not be found as you, she is planting the seed in David's mind that the action he's planting is evil and he will regret this later if he does it. Abigail tells David she sees the Lord's hand in restraining him from sin. She offers her gifts to David and his men, and she acknowledges the sin against him and asks for his forgiveness. And then in verses 28 to 31, she corrects David by using the promises of God. She reminds him of the Lord's protection of him in preserving his life from Saul. And she smartly and cunningly and convincingly points David to the Lord's victory over Goliath through him by saying, the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. It was with a sling that David slew Goliath. In verses 30 to 31, she is very delicate and kind even as she rebukes him. She basically tells him, Don't put yourself in the place that rightly belongs to God. Don't work salvation for yourself. Deliverance belongs to the Lord, not to you. You don't need to take vengeance, David, because you can trust the Lord to do what's just and right and good. And she does all this while maintaining a sensitive, gentle, and quiet spirit. You see, Abigail is the stop sign that the Lord sent to protect David from this disaster. Over and over in this speech, Abigail is saying in so many different ways to David, don't succumb to your selfish and sinful desires, but trust in the Lord. Trust in His promises. Trust in His goodness. Trust in His provision and care for you. Well, how does David respond? Point four. David repents and puts his trust in God. Verses 32 to 39. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from murder, from blood guilt, and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as Surely, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. David had listened to her gentle rebuke. You see, when David's sin is exposed, he repents. He turns to the Lord. 
This is a pattern of David's life. Even when David commits grievous sin, he eventually turns and repents before the Lord. He praises God for using Abigail to keep him from doing something horribly disastrous. David, in effect, says thank you to God and to Abigail for restraining him, to keep him from avenging himself. Well, God intervened by bringing Abigail, or rather bringing David, before Abigail. And he reminded David of the grace and mercy that God had shown in his life. The story finishes with verse 36 and following. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Well, Abigail returns home to a party. Nabal is feasting, he's drunk. She tells him what happened the next morning, and God strikes him. Who knows, is it a heart attack, is it a stroke? But the Lord judged the sin of Nabal. Well, what's the application for us? What's the lessons for us this day? We have sinners highlighted here for us, don't we? We have Nabal who broke God's law by not loving his neighbor as himself. The character of his life is one of sin and rebellion against God. We have David who to this point in the Bible is portrayed as an exemplary man, a, a hero that God has raised up, who refuses to kill Saul in the chapter before. Yet when David is confronted by Nabal, David is ready to kill him and all the males of his household for insulting him. David is ready to murder for pride. David is a sinner, a man who could so very easily be just like Saul given the right set of circumstances and without the grace and intervention of God. The point we are to take away here is that our sovereign and gracious God intervenes to keep his people from disaster. When we who have sinned against God and are deserving of his punishment for our own sin receive from him grace and mercy based on the blood of Jesus Christ, we as his children are privileged and blessed to have his deliverance and his protection. Can you testify to this in your own life? When God has put roadblocks in your path demonstrating his mercy and showing his grace through his providential care, through his control of the every day when what we often see as the normal circumstances of life, do we recognize them as the acts of a loving father? Or do we see them as someone who is mean and just wants to keep us from getting what we want for no good reason? Well, our God is good. Romans 8.28 reminds us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Is this truth fixed in your mind? It should influence our attitudes about our circumstances. 
Could it be that when we don't get what we want, God is protecting us from disaster that we don't see? We don't have enough perspective to understand that God is being kind and gracious and merciful to us in preventing us from doing things and putting roadblocks in our way. Matter of fact, I think most of the time, I don't even see what God has kept from me. The sin that could entice me. God protects me and protects you as a believer in Christ from things you don't even know or realize. Has it struck you yet how chapter 24 and 25 of 1 Samuel fit together? In chapter 24, Saul is a sitting duck. Yet neither David nor his men killed Saul. David is the restrainer of evil in chapter 24 who prevents murder. But in chapter 25, David is nearly the perpetrator of murder and evil. In chapter 24, David sees quite clearly the evil that's before him. But in chapter 25, he's blind to what he's doing. David doesn't make the connection. God has to bring Abigail into the picture to do that. We can be like that, can't we? In one situation, we see clearly what the Lord would have us do. We see how living in the light of the gospel applies to the situation. But change that situation just a little bit. Put myself in a different context. And I don't see it. Just like David has forgot the grace and the mercy of God before Nabal, so we too often forget the gospel of Christ and its call for us to live in love and grace and mercy with those our lives come in contact with in our families, in our church, at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our world. When the transitions of life bring trial and difficulty, when relationship troubles overwhelm us, when sickness comes and it appears that it might defeat us, when troubles at work make us feel like a failure, when the shadow of death comes to the ones we love, we need to cling to Him. We need to cling to the cross. The Lord is working out His perfect plan of redemption in this world and Along with that, we should take comfort in knowing that our sovereign and gracious God intervenes to keep his people from disaster. What a great God we have. What great hope we have in Christ. The one who is seated at the right hand of the Father right now at this moment and who intervenes, who intercedes for us before the throne of God. Not as a sinful king, but as the ultimate king as our perfect king, as our sacrifice for sin, as the worthy lamb who rules and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled when we see you work. We are humbled even, Father, as we Look at Abigail and how you used her and even how you used this unnamed servant to stop David from sin.
to stop him from being a king like Saul or a king like all the other kings of the world who execute their selfish ambitions on people without regard for holiness and truth and justice. But you, God, are a God of love, a God of truth, a God of justice. And Father, even though we are deserving of your judgment, you have placed the penalty for our sin on our substitute, Jesus Christ. We thank you for Christ. We thank you this day that we would be people who seek to follow the example of Jesus in being humble. We deserve no better than our Master, Father. So I pray that when we are disrespected, when our pride is is stung, when our self-righteousness comes to the fore, that we would remember the gospel of Christ. We would be remembering the great gift of grace and mercy bestowed upon us as sinners through your Son. I pray, Father, that we would live lives of holiness before you out of thankfulness and joy. Not to earn our salvation, Father, for we cannot do that. But rather, Father, we would seek to serve you by living before others as your ambassadors, your representatives, that we would show forth in our lives the character of Christ and speak the words that you have given us to our friends, to our neighbors, to our families, that we would remember that you called us to come to the foot of the cross daily. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.